song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Extremely exciting episode today, and some would say an essential episode, David. Wow, you just took the exact same joke you used at the beginning of last episode and, and shoehorned some sort of another pun onto it. I think... I think we're in store for a doozy. <laughs> it is the second season, man. I have to start recycling jokes. I don't understand <laughs> what you think this is. Did you not watch mid nineties WCW? Get out of here. Well, when we're when we're second, when we're seven seasons in, people will look back and they'll say, "Well, you know, the first one they were just kind of you know figuring out who they were, and then the second one, you know, who knows?" But then when they when they got to the third one, that's that's when the show really uh, became uh, transcendent. Yeah, that's when the peyote kicked in and we. Just started rocking. Um, we are doing an essential viewings episode of the Blue WO. The Blue WO. We are doing an essential viewings episode of the Blue World Order or the BWO. We, for the most part, I think, kept it in the BWO family. We didn't do the usual thing where we take give you outside stuff because uh, honestly, a Blue Meanie has, I think. 14 total TV matches. In total, those matches are about seven minutes. But we did uh, look at a lot of... I think pretty much everybody except for Nova got their own uh, special matches. And we wanted to start actually with Meanie and Stevie, right, Dave? Uh, In part because it's a good way to segue into how awful Joey Styles is. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we had kind of, uh, you definitely, I think we're most vocal, but I certainly agree with you in the last episode that uh, when you watch the, the BWO stuff, uh, Joey Styles tends to stand out one way or another. The, when he's really behind this stuff and into it, it's like fun. And when he's just crapping on it, it's really hard to watch. And that's what really made me sad to watch the kind of debut or the kind of er proto debut of this gimmick and, and styles like doesn't really give it a chance like Meanie, so Meanie is in the crowd planted in the crowd as a stevie richards super fan and he gives him a a fan airbrushed homemade half shirt of the sort of sexy half shirt that stevie richards would wear as part of his gimmick styles takes 0.5 seconds to get really really homophobic looking back at this with 2019 eyes, that was that was something I could not help but just rub my eyes over and over as I listened to him saying this. With the like blink blink noise, like it's like the second they start talking, he's like, "Oh, they must be attracted to each other," and it's like, "Okay, it seems like a weird way to start off this conversation." Either way, and they don't even do the thing of just like, "Yeah, that that's a big deal." But even Jerry Lawler had the decency to be like, "Yeah, live your life." <laughs> Yeah, that's what's wild is this almost reminded me actually of how like, yeah, Lawler would react to Meanie when he was in the WWF with Goldust, where there was this thing where it's like, oh, he's a, he's a freak and he's all into this other freaky guy and stuff. But like with the, the Goldust stuff, it was more overt. But here I thought like the way they were playing it was like, it was, it was really innocent. It was like two fools. It was like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern meeting yes. together. You know what I mean? Like, I thought they played it that way. And then it was only Styles who was making it weird. When we were in the Arn Anderson episode, we talked about so much great commentary and how it, you know, seamlessly lines up with what you're seeing. And I thought this was actually really dissonant, where Meanie and Stevie were playing it one way, and then Joey Styles was presenting it totally differently. And I think that hurt things. Yeah, so after he gives him the shirt, he takes Meanie, he puts him in the corner... <laughs> Nobody puts Meanie in the corner, but <laughs> and they basically he's there in the side for the match, but you can see that there's a, like a real connection between the two, and it's a little adversarial. Not adversarial. It's a little confrontational after Meanie misses the Meanie salt, but it's not. It's, it's like a stark contrast to the meanness of the Stevie raven relationship like it is you can see the parallels a little bit and i think they were doing that on purpose but i i feel like you can see that stevie is a better person than raven is yeah exactly and in part one we talked a lot about how you know the bwo in in some ways were as you said about getting stevie richards over he was kind of the singular person who was you know the 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 most main eventy or certainly who who got the closest uh, but on, on the other hand, they were also really about getting Raven over just by being like a study in contrast. And I thought that this was really great because it's like, 
you know, they, they presented how Raven treated Stevie on TV, that he always kind of talked down to him, that he had, you know, broken him down psychologically by being a dick to him. And that's why Stevie was, would do anything that he asked for at the end of the day, even though he didn't like it, you know what I mean? But then you have the contrast of like, when Stevie has someone who really looks up to him and who he's in or could could claim power over he chooses not to like once again even though he's the bad guy's lackey he himself has a heart of gold and just wants to like jump around with the fat guy yeah exactly there's a i know i use this word a lot joy de vivre of between them they're like you can see stevie separate from raven is like a really joyful guy who is clearly with raven running with the wrong crowd and i don't like and I, obviously there's a lot more history for it but that joey styles again the way he frames it is though you you should give stevie no quarter he's inherently bad because he's done bad things and like that's not for all the talk about like the anti-hero and the shades of gray in ecw it's like no they were very serious and joey styles in particular were very serious about framing characters and framing instances and framing moments in the way they wanted you to feel or the way joey styles felt because i honestly don't know what paul Heyman is doing in these instances i don't mean like it's so crazy it's disconnected i mean in the sense like i don't know how involved he is in the the individual things joey styles says but the idea that this is any different than Vince McMahon is insane. Like I, I if you learn nothing else from these episodes. I would like to dispel the myth that the ECW was some sort of like super realistic place where everybody had a say and like anybody could get over. It's like, no, they got over who they wanted to get over. And if they, you didn't get over when they were doing that, they just repackaged you in an insane way or did something completely different with you. They didn't like, they didn't do that much different. They were, and this is Paul Heyman's big thing. They were good at hiding the negative stuff they did and accentuating the positive. That's the difference is that you didn't see as many of their warts in that, in the like way they told storylines. You saw it in the way they presented the show on a shot by shot basis. Mm -hmm. I definitely think that's true. And again, I think it comes back to the commentary a little bit of like, uh, when you watch this match, a lot of what Styles is focusing on when he's talking about, why he doesn't like Stevie and why you shouldn't either. He's like making fun of the way he looks and the way he dresses a lot, which like, I don't know. It, he's just sort of like portraying him on one hand as this hapless buffoon. And on the other hand, like you said, he also says, well, he does all this bad stuff for Raven. So you, you kind of, you know, he might look like a smiley guy, but you can't really trust him. And I think that they're, I don't know. There, there, there's a, there's a, there's a major dissonance there. It's like you got to be telling, in my opinion, at least. It's like it's got to be one of those things or the other. It can't really be both. And like you said, I think that speaks to the production. That's like a before the match, sitting down with the announcer and making it super clear, like this is the direction psychologically. Because like you see that in like some of the raws in the Attitude Era or in kind of the the mass rewrite era of like five to eight years ago and stuff like when the announcers are on air and they're trying to guess at the psychology that usually leads to to things being hurt and i thought that that was the case here as well yeah it's not a bad debut but you can see that it's a good partnership that at least the way joey styles is framing it is not something that you should be looking forward to and here's a spoiler alert you totally should be looking forward to it because a year from this a year from november to remember 95 as we mentioned yesterday um was november i guess not a year to the day but a a year to the show i should say uh after at november to remember 96 the bwo starts they come out just with bwo signs in the audience and they cut a promo it's pretty Bog standard promo.
And and you hear it, they're just kind of establishing who they are and why they're here, <laughs> which is ironic considering. Yeah, right, especially considering what you just said, this kind of idea that the ECW was supposed to be and sort of the mythology of it was that it was like somehow more real, whereas the actual debut of Scott Hall was far more real. The actual, you know, original debut of Kevin Nash was far more quote unquote real because, you know, they came through the crowd or they attacked the announce desk and stuff. Whereas this is literally like wrestlers making, as you would say, like a bog standard entrance and cutting a promo in the middle of the ring. It's like on one level, you're like, well, that's way more contrived. But then I was kind of starting to scratch my head and be like, well, are they pointing out the contrived nature of the NWO? Like, I, at first, I kind of wanted to judge it. But then I started to think like, well, hold on. Is there like a two level thing going on here? And I think with the BWO, it's fair to say there usually is just because it's such an inside thing. We talked about this. The idea that they're kind of like aware of how dumb an idea the NWO would be if you didn't have stroke, like if you didn't have actual power and that's what they're kind of making fun of. I feel like that's also like they didn't have the wherewithal or the ability to like go through the crowd. So they had to like be workers at the company and be like, we're, we're taking over. We promise not like in a, it's not threatening in any way. (laughs) It's the most innocuous like declaration of war I've ever seen. Yeah, it, it reminds me of if you watch the Bash at the Beach promo, it's either that promo or the very next Nitro. I think it actually is that promo where Hogan starts and it's like really, really strong. And then he just like gets into pro wrestling promo mode about, you know, the WCW brother and like talking and on. And you can see Scott Hall in the background doing what I was describing earlier, just kind of grasping at the bridge of his nose and like rubbing his forehead, doing the like, come on, dude, we're trying to do something that's like realer here. And this is instantly a wrestling promo. And that's something that Hall and Nash have talked about in the past that like, as soon as Hogan was in the group, they were kind of like, oh man, this kind of like killed our authenticity. And here we are just being another pro wrestling thing. But in the BWO, it just starts with all three members. So it's sort of like they're starting at the contrived. Yeah. And It works. It's a group that really works, but it's also a promo that really works. It is one of those things where you hear it and you're like, oh, that's actually, that's clever. That's clever. Watching the the blue guy and seeing Big Stevie Cool and seeing Hollywood Nova, you are charmed by it in a way that I think if they had built it up naturally, it would have felt so on the nose as to like lose most of its charm. Oh, oh no, definitely. I mean, it is as much as I was just kind of dragging Joey Styles in the first bit, I thought that he put them over like crazy here. Like this was one where his enthusiasm really kind of helped them. Like my, my favorite bit is when the camera's panning the three of them and kind of showing them in their, their new gimmick. Joe, it stops on uh, on Meanie, who is doing Scott Hall, Razor Ramon, and he, you know, he's pulling something out of his mouth like Scott Hall would a toothpick, and Joey goes, "That's no toothpick, that's a chicken bone." And like for whatever reason, that pops the hell out of me every single time I watch it. But I think like that wasn't him. Like like in the first match we were talking about them, he's like shitting on them. He's like, "Oh, Stevie dresses stupid, and they're gay." Like that's basically what Styles says. But in this one. He, he buys into the ridiculousness and puts it over in, in a way that makes things much better. Yeah, it is not trying to be too cool about things. And I, I just feel like, I don't know how much more we have to focus on Joey Styles for this. Because he does get a lot better, but like... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, but for whatever reason, when I was oh, watching no. these, it was like all I could think is I was like, God, he's Jekyll and Hyde. I felt the same way. And, and that's the thing is I think you get a lot of Hyde in the earlier... ECW and then you can see as he develops as he matures into his job how he starts to understand his role better which is not just in the sense of like he gets better at the job but in the sense that he understands that when he says something he's not quite like the voice of God but he is an important person in terms of how the audience interprets what they're seeing and I I think he starts to understand the level of that power that he is in many ways the the most recognizable person or definitely the most recognizable voice in ECW. It's not Paul Heyman. It's not necessarily even like Raven. It's Joey Styles because he's on every show and you see him all the time. And you, he's the one guy you get to see like 
every single episode he's on it. And I, I think that makes a huge difference. And I think as he starts to get older or just feel more comfortable in the role, you see him move away from this like more antagonistic, like he's still misogynist and he's still like pretty homophobic, but it becomes less like confrontational and more like JR style uh, homophobia or not even homo. I want to don't want to say JR is homophobic, but like, the the rear end jokes that he makes about Pat Patterson and the Briscoe's body shop, like that kind of stuff where it's like, it's not appropriate, but he's not like malicious where like earlier on, he's actually kind of malicious when he, he's not kind of, he's a malicious in his homophobia, which I, I'm not condoning homophobia. I'm saying like, there is the old timey, like I can listen to it. And there's just like, this is just like gay bashing weird shit, man. Like just let them wrestle. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that that's a very important distinction. And, and I think you're right to say he got better, but I think it was just when he's bad, it's especially noticeable because he's doing it all by himself. Um, like when you get to like the TNN era, you have Don Callis in there who he actually, I thought the two of them were great. And there's always been that rumor that, oh, Bischoff was going to resurrect WCW and Styles and Callis were going to be the announcers, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, but like I, when he is by himself having to fill a lot of that air, uh, yeah, <laughs> I get I, that, 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 that he can, it's, it's easy to notice when, uh, when he's being bad because there's nobody there to, to help him or just to make him shut up for a minute and to talk instead, or even just to like squeeze him on the leg and go like, stop talking. <laughs> like, like for all the fun I make of the three man booth now. And I, I don't think it's very good. I, I just think two is the right number. Cause it's like, I don't think, I think one is putting someone in a really tough position where they have to call the moves. They have to tell the story. They have to, like you said, tell the crowd how to feel. Whereas like in the WWF, they masterfully split that up with JR and King where like JR would call the moves and the psychology and King would just tell you how to feel. And like, I think that when people are, are talking about what makes JR and King such a classic combination, I think that's what's like left out of the discussion is that it's like, that the Jerry Lawler was just it. He was only there to tell you how to feel. Uh, but like Styles had to do both those jobs. And sometimes I think that he was trying to be that in your face color man, like a Jerry Lawler, but then in the next breath, go back to being the straight announcer. And that's a really tough uh, road to hoe. And there's something we wanted to talk about before we got to the BWO at barely legal with Stevie Richards, Terry Funk and Sandman. And that's uh Stevie Richards and the BWO coming to terms, I guess you would call it, or making peace with Tommy Dreamer, which is a really seminal moment in ECW history because like we had just, we just spoke about um, Raven is basically Stevie Richards boss and he's been feuding with Tommy Dreamer again since they were 12 and Raven's never beat him. Uh, sorry. Tommy's never beaten Raven in anything like that. Guys, folks, 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 I need you to understand. That's the entire storyline is that Raven's been mean to Tommy dreamer since they were kids. That's it. That's the whole thing. <laughs> sorry. I, it drives me wild. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you that I, I, I was not like a big summer camp guy. I know, you know, if you're, if you're from a certain part of the Northeast, it's like a big thing. Uh, but, but I did go to like, like a four nights away type camp excursion one summer when I was like 12 or 13. And I can tell you that, uh, nobody, uh, who I knew who went on that trip, uh, stayed in touch with the prettiest girl. Just, just throwing it out there. It's crazy. It's like this crazy, crazy storyline that this puts a bow on for, or at least that part, the like Stevie Richards and Tommy Dreamer part of it where stevie richard would constantly be bothering or hurting or are doing damage to tommy dreamer and stevie richards is now a, a good guy right this is like basically their face turn even though they had been the face lackeys of raven for a really long time yeah yeah this is them basically spinning out it's like they uh it's like i think it's uh stevie shakes hands with tommy dreamer and uh, a Sandman's son, Tyler, comes out wearing a, a BWO shirt. So it's like they are clearly shown as now being friendly with Raven's two biggest adversaries. And that sets up uh, uh, Stevie getting 
put into the qualifier to to get the title shot at the end of barely legal so it kind of marks the end of an era for the group the kind of end of their original purpose like we talked about in the first show which was really being a part of raven's act but then continuing to that next chapter which like you said was about trying to kind of spin uh trying to uh spin stevie richards out as a single star you know and and find some other value uh and i i I can't tell having watched this match why that didn't work out i have no clue why stevie richards didn't work as a singles wrestler i'm being really sarcastic this match um it's there it's a match that happens uh it's am i just being too harsh like do you think it's a good match i don't want to put you on the spot but like i remember watching this when i was younger and being like oh it's okay and watching it now i'm just like oh okay uh you mean the, the barely legal yeah. match the three-way the three-way yeah. dance um I think that for a Sandman match, it's really good. That's true. <laughs> I, I think that for a Sandman match, it's really good. And I think that it, Terry Funk, I think that he kind of gave the fans in ECW what they expected out of Terry Funk in that match. I think it's one of those matches that's like, once again, it comes back to production and communication and the fact that that match ran long. So then when you got to Funk and Raven at the end of the show, they only wrestle for like 30 seconds. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so, so I, I'll, I've always kind of counted that as the big mark against this match, uh, that, it, that it didn't quote unquote know its role, so to speak. But I think that Richards played his role really well. You know, that in that triple threat match, I think the WWE makes the mistake of putting three equally powerful characters in there too often. And I think that makes that, that makes it, more difficult to contrive the why there's always one guy out of the ring thing. Yeah. But I think that when you have someone who is quote unquote, the weak link that explains why maybe they're joining with, you know, joining with funk to beat up Sandman one minute and then Sandman to beat up funk the next, like having that person who's the aspiring mid Carter, I think it helps the triple threat match a lot psychologically. And I think that he, he did a, he did a good job being the guy who goes out first, so to speak. You know what I mean? I think it's an important spot and he was the right guy for it in that moment. And I think he did great, but I don't think that there was ever the follow-up. Like, okay, you've, you've pushed him into the main event and he's been in the main event and he's rubbed shoulders with, with some of the most important people in your company, but it's like, you know, now what for him? That never really happened. He, you know, that he went to WCW and didn't have work out there. And then he comes back to, to ECW. And we'll talk about a couple of those matches later. And like, but it's just never the same. At one point, it's like the, the high point, the moment where it looks like he's just about to break through and he's just about to be really taken seriously in the world of wrestling. And then it's like, the, the head writer got fired for some reason and the new guy came in and he had never really understood that character. Like it almost feels like that. It feels like they were, were, and I don't think this is the case. I think actually what happened is he got his neck hurt the next, in that, that general time frame and uh, in a Terry Funk match actually. But I, I feel like the thing that Stevie Richards also gives you, and I think the uh, what you're saying is, and this is another example of Joey Styles help making the match and Tommy Dreamer actually helps him on commentary a little bit is that Stevie, they put over Stevie the entire match. Like Stevie is treated like an up and coming star as a, like a serious contender as a guy who is finally starting to make it. They really do do a, They really do a good job of keeping him where it feels like he, if he doesn't belong now, he will eventually belong at the level of these guys, which I don't know what that means in terms of Sandman, but in terms of Terry Funk is pretty high praise. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this, this kind of reminds me to to compare it to a, a current WWE match that, that just happened is like, this is a little bit like being in the elimination chamber. It reminds me of the elimination chamber in the sense that, well, A, there's eliminations because in the three-way dance, I think it is in ECW, it's an elimination based thing. It's not just whoever gets the first pinfall. I think that also changes the dynamic. Another thing I noticed, and and this is something you really notice in the BWO FBI match we're going to talk about in a couple minutes, is that all of these matches on the network are pegged at certain times and they don't 
start for like five to 10 minutes after that start time. And part of the problem is guys like Sandman. I I don't want to spend as much time on Sandman as we spent on Joey Styles, but I do have to ask what the fuck was up with Sandman? Like, I don't, is there something I'm missing with Sandman? Like he sucks, right? He's like, not good. Is that the gimmick? (laughs) I mean, I've seen, I mean, if you, if you look at some of those hardcore TV episodes and even some of those pay-per-views, there, there are many matches that he was involved in that made air where like stuff looked like really, really dangerous, uh, in a way that it shouldn't, (laughs) you know what I mean? Um, I don't know if you saw it, Nick, but he recently, made an appearance uh, in MLW because they did a show in Philadelphia and Tommy Dreamer needed a mystery partner uh, and Raven was already doing an appearance with Impact, so here's Sandman. Uh, but uh, but he still did like the exact same shtick where it took him like forever to get to the ring and he was the like pouring the beers on people and he still in 2019 poured the beer in a woman's cleavage and like, uh, pardon the phrase, but motorboated it. Uh, like it, it, it's pretty wild. Like I can't believe that he does it in 2019, but I also can't believe that like he ever did it and it got over. It just speaks to the, it, it's one of the best examples of ECW being so much more than the sum of its parts. And that like a rising tide floats all ships to some degree. You know what I mean? Because like, yeah, I mean, he was never a great wrestler and I have seen him on film. Like I said, at, at times when he was, ostensibly getting paid the most and things were the most important seem inebriated in a way that that's disrespectful in my opinion to the the business and the people who are paying and the other people that you're in the ring with so i'm not the biggest fan uh god i wish i could stop burying aspects of of ecw as we have this conversation but like i said before i thought that kind of this was the best case scenario for a sandman match like this was the wild and woolly really sloppy car crash that 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 was still kind of slapsticky and three stoogesy at the same time. I feel like this match is why ECW wasn't going to work out long term is like Sandman terrible. D- Terry Funk and, and this is the best use of Sandman and it was still borderline unwatchable a lot of it. Uh Terry Funk is an aging star who yeah it's great but I I cannot understand why he won i know it's i get it he's terry funk but why wouldn't you have stevie richards or the or sandman win i i don't have a comprehension of why you would put your belt on terry funk when he's going to be leaving in three months and, and i understand you want to have him in the main event but you already have him basically in the main event and you don't have him competing for a title when you have a guy like... like I think I would have felt much differently about this match if Stevie Richards or even if Sandman won. But the idea that Stevie Richards is... I, I, I love Terry Funk, but it just felt like it... It felt like he's too old to be beating these guys in this match. I, I, I know that sounds harsh. He was he was middle-aged and crazy. You know what I mean? Which which I guess which which means something definitely. But he was also he was also middle-aged and crazy in whatever 1989. That's exactly <laughs> almost, what I was thinking. Almost 10 years earlier. You know what I mean? No, uh, I think that you run into another one of the things that if you if you go back on the network and you start watching a lot of ECW, you start notice, noticing things that people weren't noticing about wrestling in the 90s. And I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I just mean that like we've looked through different lenses. And I think one of the things you see in ECW is that there were certain matches or even whole angles and storylines that were really like for the boys or for the locker room rather than actually being for the audience. And I think making Terry Funk the champion was like one for the boys because he was someone who was like a personal hero to most of the people in that locker room. And for a lot of those guys, you know, they weren't going to get acceptance from Ric Flair or Bruno San Martino or Hulk Hogan. But here was a legend of the business from a previous generation, like telling them that he thought that they were great and validating them and, you know, validating the project that they were a part of. And I think his title reign had more to do with that. I think it was kind of an angle that wound up being for the boys. But I agree with you that ultimately the people, like the, the thing that suffers ultimately is is the television in that situation, which is short-sighted. Yeah, it's that's how you're, uh, yeah. I, 
I I don't hate this match. I, I, it's one of my least favorite things we've watched for, but I really hate Sandman maybe more than you do. So like this one's a rough one for me. I, I feel like you should watch this because it's an important thing in ECW history and you get to also listen to some of the worst commentary of all time from Tommy Dreamer, uh, who's like, actually, to be fair to him, not trying to do commentary necessarily. He's trying to watch the match. But I, I feel like you, you need to watch it because it's, it's important to understand for the history of ECW. But like this match is just like, I'm so happy we have the beat, the next three matches. Let me just put it that like that's the best way to put it. Is like this is the most important match on our list, but I also think it's like one of the worst matches that you have to watch to understand modern wrestling. Is is that a fair assessment, or am I being way too harsh? I remember the first time I saw this match was on that Rise and Fall of ECW DVD set that I've brought up a couple times that the WWE put out, and it was like the big one of the biggest home releases they ever did of anything ever. But I th- that was the first time I saw this match. And I just remember thinking that even compared to the other best of stuff that was on that DVD, that like that match is really important to the history of the company. And it's not hard to understand why, because it, it set up their, their first pay-per-view or it was the main event of their first pay-per-view. You know what I mean? But like, but they, uh, I, it, it, even like on that DVD of greatest hits, I was always kind of like, man, this match is like really sluggish and really messy and there's a lot going on. And maybe that kind of thing is exciting in person, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I, I think that this is one of those wrestling matches. It's like, uh, well, I don't even want to compare it to this match because I like this match a lot. Uh, it, it's almost like a Hogan Andre at WrestleMania three, where it's like not a great match, but you absolutely need to watch it to understand both the careers of the people involved and the history of the, the organization that promoted the match. Yeah, yeah. It's an essential viewing in the purest sense. And I don't mean that. And I mean, like, it's toxically pure. <laughs> um, uh, but this next match, the BWO versus FBI, uh, the full-blooded Italians, of course, at Wrestlepalooza 98 is like the complete opposite. There, I don't know if we will ever watch a less essential match that I enjoyed more. This is just like... Such a fun tag team match. And Tracy Smothers as a member of the Full-Blooded Italians is like actually something I pop for. And that's not even a phrase I usually use, but I laughed out loud more than once when he's doing the I'm Italian, let me thrust my crotch at you dance. It's like legitimately hilarious to watch these idiots wrestle. I'm also a big fan of the like... uh fingers under the chin but when you watch some of the later fbi stuff like they just do it constantly but specifically the way tracy smothers does it and like makes it part of his dance routine is just one of my favorite things yeah it's they're all good workers too like this is a match filled with good workers tracy smothers is legitimately like a fantastic seller he they're all nunzio slash little guido is also a great worker like these are all three out of the four guys are actively like some of the better workers in the company and even blue meanie can go and he doesn't spend that much time in the match like this is an example of what you can do with a good comedy match with two comedy teams without making the match itself uh, like we said it's not essential but it's not unimportant like it's an important thing on the show because those are two groups that are over and they want to see who's going to like they're people are rooting for the BWO and people are rooting against the uh, rooting against FBI but they're interested in the match at a really high level it's almost shocking how much they care about the match yeah i think that this match is an essential viewing for me in that like all those TNA pay-per-views, like for the first five years of that company's existence, or 10 even, uh, th- this is what that opening match on every one of those pay-per-views was always trying to be. The match that was like light and fun, but still a ton of action and people were invested. And even if the guys in the match weren't, you know, really... Uh, super duper crazy important going big places it still felt like a good spot and people were really into it this was that match that like people were always trying to recreate from like 2002 to 2010 like this is that opener car crash but where it's fun and it's flippant but it's also still like engaging and sets up the rest of the show without doing too much i thought that 
this is a just a great, great, great early on the card match. If I was booking like the all time pay per view card, like this could be the opener for. Yeah, me. it is a really fun match. Is a fun match. I would go out of your way to find it. I believe we have in the we'll have in the show description, we'll have the link for all of these matches so you can go straight to it. Uh, yeah, it is totally worth, it is, I, again, I, I don't think it's where I, the best match we've, which is the 1987 Starcade match between the Road Warriors and uh, the Four Horsemen. Uh, like that's to me our favorite tag team match that we've done and what probably the favorite match overall. But this is really close to that in terms of a tag team match like it is not this transcendent thing because there's no like great stars and there's really no transcendent performance in the way that you have like arn anderson and hawk and Charlie blanchard all putting on like m- like top of the line performances this is a good match this is like a really great high scoring regular season basketball game where like the 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 teams are just running up and down the floor nobody's really playing defense but they're putting on an exciting show that the people in the arena care about and that makes you care about at home it's wrestling to me the more i watch wrestling the more there's a a sublimeness to a good tag team match that really transcends the average singles match. Like, I think I care more about singles achievements for for performers. I care more about Kofi Kingston winning the world title than I do about him being the eight-time world tag team champions. But I love tag team wrestling on average more. Good tag team wrestling and good singles is like, I don't think there's a comparison. A good tag team match will warm the cockles of your heart. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that, ironically, tag team wrestling is wrestling in its purest form. Even though you have more people in the ring, just all that wrestling psychology, both in terms of, like, the baby faces fire and the baby faces ordeal and the baby faces connection with the crowd, like, that's all heightened. And, like, the heel's ability and the necessity of of either cheating or being mean, et cetera, et cetera, I think just there's, there's so many more opportunities in just that classic two-on-two tag format to do that. Then of all the crazy gimmick matches that have been created in the last 20, 25 years, I think the standard two-on-two match with, you know, one guy in, one guy out really is just the the, the purest essence of, of pro wrestling psychology. And, and as you said, like, this isn't a main event tag match, but this is an excellent kind of undercard, middle card, opener style tag match. Like, like I said, maybe one of the best I've ever seen. Though I, I do want to say this. I would have liked to have seen Blue Meanie, sorry, Nova and Big Stevie Cool, Stevie Richards, get way more of a, like, I I like Blue Meanie, but I actually think that Stevie Richards and Hollywood Nova would have made a good tag team in a way that Blue Meanie and anybody else makes a fun tag team. Like, I think if I would were to say one thing was missing, it would be that Stevie Richards is the best athlete out of the three probably uh and i think like blue meanie is much better served as a background guy than and as a guy that comes in and does a backflip than anything else i but i I think the match like this match i like remember watching it like lying down going through the list of matches we were supposed to watch and like sitting up and actually like focusing in on this match it's it, like like we just said, tag team matches have a special level of psychology that it just comes naturally to the flow of the match. And like this match is so good, it makes me like Tommy Rich. That's how good this match is. <laughs> no, definitely, I, I I couldn't agree more. And this this was a great example too of like we talked about this a lot in the last episode, and it's it's bled into this one as well. The the kind of like relative reality of ECW and like is ECW in some ways kind of a parody dimension and I think you saw that playing out really beautifully here that like we said that this is like a great tag match with all this great psychology but like one of the teams is a parody of of the NWO and the other team is the Mafia which is almost like a parody or or a or like a senseless uh 
uh, what's the word, a reducto absurdum escalation of the whole idea of a wrestling faction. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, oh yeah, they've got a faction. What's the deal? Why are those guys together? Oh, they're the mafia. it's almost a parody of the idea of a stable and it's almost like the what we talked about last time with the race wars in w and wwf at the time uh that it's like the bariquas are all puerto rican guys and the nation of domination is all black guys and the disciples of Parker's lips are all white supremacists like they're (laughs) or at least two of them are um those then you have the FBI and the three Italian guys they have are little Guido, Tracy Smothers and Tommy rich. And it's like, there are no two people less Italian on earth. And I say, this is someone whose mom's last name is Maratea. Like there are, there's no less Italian person on earth than Tracy Smothers. I will like stand by that. It's, it's such a funny idea that they and what's his face? Joey Styles' last name is like Bonsignor. It's a super Italian name. He's like these motherfuckers aren't Italian. It, it's like actually when Joey Styles works, when he's again not trying to be cool, but just like having a laugh at the expense of the idiots on the show. Like it does actually work, and him just like his hatred of Tracy Smothers' dance is also really great. Like, there's so much fun shit in this match, and it's also a good match. Like, it's actually well constructed and fun, and that's the other thing that's really hard to do is to pull off like a comedy movie that you're actually interested in. Yeah, definitely. That was one of the compliments that I gave uh, Mark Masick's Kaboom Two, available on Amazon. Um, so uh, now that we've spent time talking about the best tag team match in the history of wrestling I wanted to talk about the best chair shot anybody that's ever gotten that deserved it Uh, but I'm also against headshots so like I feel weird about saying that but JBL got uh, annihilated by the BWO in a match in 2005. Uh, uh, It was the Blue Meanie and JBL. Can you give us a little bit of the backstory as how that match came to be? Oh, sure. If you have YouTube, you can learn everything about this story told by everybody who was there and a lot of people who weren't. Uh, But I'll give you the really quick version, which was when they did, uh, I think it was the second, it was either the first or second one-night stand pay-per-view in the Hammerstein Ballroom. Uh, they, it must've been the second cause they were going to bring ECW back as like a third brand. And so to, to put some spice on that, uh, angle, they had, uh, they had JBL and a bunch of his kind of cabinet folks when he was the top dog on SmackDown, they had them there in the building, uh, doing kind of like douchebaggy MST3K, uh, type commentary. And, and JBL was clearly drinking uh, quite a, quite a good bit. And during that whole thing. And so at the end of the show uh they had like an all the ecw guys in the ring uh basically have a huge brawl with the smackdown guys so the smackdown guys come down from their box and they just start this big brawl which is going to kind of kick off the idea of ecw being this third brand but uh in that brawl jbl uh went out of his way to make sure that he that he found the blue meanie uh, you can see him on video very purposefully walk across the ring straight towards him and just uh, punch him really, really nasty as hard as he could could several times uh, in the face, uh, really uh, blacking his eye. And uh, he, it looked really, really nasty afterwards. So it was uh, JBL just being kind of a, a drunk jerk who, you know, didn't like we talked about last episode. There's the where I kind of voiced it and Nick booed me down. The idea that you know, we've got to protect the business from these regular fat guys thinking that they can do this. Like, I think JBL was exercising, exercising some of that aggression. No, I'm not saying that what he did was good whatsoever. No, no. But I think that that's where he was coming from. So he, uh, he beat up Meanie and basically, so WWE gave J uh, gave the BWO a little TV run, uh, basically so that they wouldn't get sued for assault. And then JBL agreed to do this match and be beat in order to, to make things right again. This is kind of in the in the history of the twisted history of Vince McMahon and JBL being in love with each other. This was one of those examples of, you know, JBL proves 
that he's like the world's worst person, but then quote unquote does the right thing for the team and shows that he's a quote unquote company man, you know, by going out there and, and getting a concussion to make it right or whatever. Oh, yeah. So one of the more screwed up little things in WWE history, but I think this match is for the reason that you said worth talking about because it is a, it is a symphony of, of enmity and, and legitimate violence. Yeah, if you ever want to see a wrestling match between two people, one of whom has no quarrel with another person and the other who hates that person and is in trouble for hating that person, so he has to make good, like, this is the match for you. Because JBL just gets his it's one of the it's not the hardest chair shot I've ever seen in a JBL match, but it's really high up there, which if you've ever seen the Eddie chair shot that Eddie gets against JBL, where JBL, I'm pretty sure Oh no, it's not it's JBL. JBL gets obliterated by Eddie Guerrero. Oh, I think that's a great American great American match. Yeah, it might be yeah, that year. Yeah. It might be from the show we're talking about, uh we'll be talking about next. I, I think it is. I mean, <laughs> this is bad. This is like, oh, enjoy that concussion, buddy. Like, holy. It's crazy because, like, you can see. So it's, it's Stevie Richards delivers the chair delivers the chair shots. JBL brings the chair into the ring because he's the heel, right? You you set the table up, you go through it. That's wrestling psychology. So he he brings the, the chair into the ring, and it, it he drops it at some point, and Stevie Richards picks it up. And then uh, JBL goes to to feed up for this chair shot and you can see stevie richards in the background who as nick has has mentioned before has a very bad neck uh you can see him pantomiming to jbl and mouthing get your hand up get your hand up make sure you get your hand up he even puts his own hand over his forehead on camera to tell jbl make sure you get your hand up and jbl doesn't he just stands up right into it and the second that he hits him you can instantly see on stevie's face just his own face is just like oh my god what did you just make me do <laughs> so even in the match where jbl is supposed to be the good boy and be taking his whooping for the team or whatever like he still psychologically is completely fucking with them like there's that moment there's also a bit where he goes to give meaning early in the match, a swinging neck breaker, which he does in every match, but he does it with a completely different timing in this match than he's ever done in any of those other matches. There's just subtle ways where you can see where just like, oh my God, this guy's a dick. But one of the ways he's a dick is refusing to put up his hand to protect his own brain from getting obliterated, which I think is a, a an interesting, uh, an interesting note. Yeah. It's like, uh, so he's just like a crazy son of a bitch. All right, cool. Uh, yeah, this match, I, I, it's worth watching, especially because it's pretty short, but it's also worth watching because I think it's more real than anything you will ever see in ECW. And I think you need to look at a match like this with ECW characters to be like, oh no, like a real wrestling, like real animosity, like a work shoot match looks much more like this than anything you're going to see in ECW. Uh, also, it's just funny to see jbl be the company man that he's like he actually is like in such a palpable way where it's just like there's no fucking reason on god's green earth or blue earth that the blue meanie should ever beat jbl in anything other than like a moonsaulting contest but they you like it's one it is one of the more clear examples of a guy got trouble in trouble backstage and this is the result things but it doesn't take away from the fact that you're like you pop for meanie winning at the end because meanie deserves to win and it's actually batista comes in and beat and i i think Spinebuster, but he might give him the Batista bomb. Uh, JB gives to JBL the Batista bomb. That's actually how the match ends. Like, they really want to make it clear like, A, Blue Meanie won, and B, Blue Meanie did not win this match on any level. <laughs> no, no, no. Stevie gives him the most devastating chair shot of all time. Meanie hits a moonsault, which like, you know, if you watch wrestling from, if you've seen a big guy do a moonsault more than once, you know the big guy usually misses the moonsault. But he actually hits his moonsault and JBL kicks out, which once again, it's like, 
are you putting these guys over or is it like another fuck you <laughs> in that moment of being like, really? So the dude, you just took the nastiest chair shot of all time. The guy hits his finisher that he never hits on you and you kicked out of it. Are you really <laughs> sorry? Are you really sorry? Or are you just saying it? I feel like he's just saying it. Do I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to, I don't know what was in JBL's heart, but I think it was hatred for Blue Beanie. So I think, I don't think he was actually upset about it, but it's a good match. It's definitely worth watching. Um, but if you have like a trigger with like catastrophic brain injury or traumatic brain injury, don't watch it. Cause holy shit, <laughs> you will watch a man lose like 15 IQ points with one hit. It is it's, again, not the worst JBL chair shot I've ever seen, but it's really close. And the worst JBL chair shot I've ever seen is the worst chair shot I've ever seen. So He also, he also I mean, I know people talk about, like, uh, Muda scale stuff and late 80s uh, Crockett. But the way JBL bleeds in that match, not so much this match, he does bleed. He does get hard weighed by that horrific chair shot. <laughs> uh, but, in the, but in the Eddie match you're talking about, that is maybe the last great blade job that is maybe the last great main event where where the blade was so fundamental to the storytelling and really took the match to the next level and made it a great main event not just a good event i would really say that that's maybe the last great blade job. yeah because he's uh half like out of it when he's half in the bag basically when he gets hit and then gigs himself like he cuts himself after he's knocked loopy like loopy loopy and it does not end well, but um, the BWO Mexicals match from the show ends well, if I remember correctly. I think the Mexicals win, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. This is kind of, you know, earlier I was talking about like the FBI match and how like from 2002 to 2010, that was like the opener people were trying to recreate. Here's an attempt to recreate that kind of opener. This just reminded me so much of TNA. This is like the matches that were on the first hour of the TNA pay-per-views back in the day to a T where it's like all guys who were good, like all guys who have nominally like over characters. There's there's some good, like the the Mexicals drive in their mowers and then the BWO come in on trikes, which is like very silly and good. Like, But then as, as uh, Bruce Pritchard is wont to say, like then the bell rings, you know what I mean? And... For whatever reason, this just has that 2000s thing where, like, they're just doing too much in the way that, like, old-timey wrestlers say people do too much, where, like, there's just zero psychology in this match. And it's a shame because they're good characters, and they, they take time with the entrances to establish the characters. But then it's just like, okay, yeah, 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 we're on early, so, like, let's let's just do all the moves. Like, it's... It's it's cool to see them, like you said, in the WWE ecosystem, but it's kind of sad here to see like where, you know, maybe they could have turned that JBL thing into a little bit of a revival, but I think that they ran up against how the style was changing, where like big cartoony personalities like them were out, like we're headed into like the John Laronitis era, you know what I mean? Like we're we're headed into the big beefy boys period of, of early 2000s WWE and like there you can just see when you watch this match like all these guys are good it's not that they've lost it it's just that there's like the way the wrestling business changed in like 2000 2001 like you're like oh shoot there there's not really a place for these guys at, at this period in wrestling history and it's funny because now if they came back like any other time in wrestling history they'd probably from when they came up they'd be fine, but they, like, were just stuck in the morass of the post-collapse, like, not the, I don't know if you can call it a collapse, per se, but the, uh, the consolidation of the wrestling industry, there was this, like, oh, we just have to do the same, how do we make this more efficient, instead of how do we make it better, and they made it more efficient by just making an assembly line of six foot four to six foot seven white guys who looked good in a t-shirt, that's all they did, and this, if you had this happen five years after or five to 10 years after, like let's say P CM Punk on, you could get away with a, a gimmick like this in WWE. It's just, they came in at the time where it was like, everything's shit. Enjoy the shit pile, everybody. Yeah. Or you could bring them back now and you could do a month with them in new day. You know what I mean? You could bring them back now, even with the, the age they all are. And I think Michael Manna is retired. I, I don't know if Steve Richard still wrestles. Uh, but like you could, you could bring them back now in the 2019 
And I think people would eat it up because number one, there's like the nostalgia pop and that's like the last great pop that people can get is, is the nostalgia pop. But I think that if you, you know, you put them in there with like new day and they had whatever, seven minutes, four weeks in a row, I think that you could build to, you know, one more really great pay-per-view match for them. And I think it would be significantly better than, than what we saw here. I think as you alluded to, it's like, I'm, maybe I'll show my hand a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of writing a column about a particular wrestler. And uh, what I've been focusing on is on this particular wrestler's career. When they broke in, they were considered very like ahead of the time and very innovative. And then towards the middle and end of their career, they're like, what they did was considered not very impressive. But now in like 2019, the business has cycled back to like where you watch that person's matches in hindsight. They were clearly one of the best people. I'll just say it. I'm talking about X-Pac. How like he, when he broke in as one, two, three kid and his lightning kid in the early nineties was like one of the first people to really do a lot of the super athletic high flying and kind of like spin kick type stuff on a high level. Then when you get into the attitude era or after the attitude era, he's just kind of another wrestler. And, but now in 2019, like mm-hmm. everybody works like Sean Waltman. Like he's one of the people who was innovating this main event style 15 years ago, but people didn't see it. And I think that if you brought the BWO back now, they would work just as well as they did in the nineties, even though they didn't work between 2002 and 2018. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know that's exactly what I'm saying is that they're the BWO came along to ECW at the right time, missed the boat for W for WWE. But like now they would work because the style of character they are is the style of character. Most people are. And it's also like, they have the nostalgia of being the NWO without being the NWO. Like they have the NWO nostalgia pop of just like, yeah, remember the NWO, but also remember the BWO. Like they have both of those. They have a, like we talked about last week, they have a last episode, they have a strong brand name on top of a, they have a strong parody brand name on top of an actual brand name. And that's really hard to do. So like, I, I think that uh, all of all the matches we mentioned, the ones you have to see are Stevie Richards versus Terry Funk and Sandman and the BWO versus the FBI at Wrestlepalooza. But I definitely think you should check out these last two just to see what the business was like at, at in the 2005 period. And also to see the word, the second worst chair shot you will ever see. And if you watch the, great american bash i believe you get to see the worst chair shot you will ever see so let's get two for one special yeah and then if you want to see some more you can just go back on any of those older ecw pay-per-views and watch any time mike awesome and masato to not <laughs> yeah just blood and hard way bruises everywhere sometimes like if i ever when i can get to the place in my mind where i don't care at all about the well-being of others those are some of the greatest fucking wrestling matches of all time where every time awesome and tanaka touched each other I mean, one of them regrettably, regrettably ultimately committed suicide, possibly as the result of head injuries and stuff. So, like, they're really, really hard to watch. Um, but just, like, if, if, if you like the ECW stuff and you like, the, like, full balls-to-the-wall, devil-may-care stuff, and if you, if you like really devastating-looking chair shots to the head and neck, uh, definitely make sure to check out Awesome and Tanaka. <laughs> um, so did you have anything you wanted to plug in particular? Well, as usual, people can follow me on Twitter at Dave Writes Junk. That's me directly in the most uh, direct way to get your meanness. Um, you should also make sure you're following The Wrestling Estate, where I publish uh, my wrestling writings when I write them. Uh, maybe that Xbox thing will be happening there at some point between now and WrestleMania, depending on how... Uh, how the sands shake through the hourglass. I also want to remember to thank uh, Michael Montalvo, one of the greatest heroes in the history of our pod. Uh, also my very close longtime personal friend for, uh, for, for giving us the inspiration to go down this lane and to, uh, for providing us with a, a new lens through which to uh, think about ECW. So make sure you follow me on Twitter. Make sure you check out The Wrestling Estate. We've got a great uh, 20 years of big show uh, roundtable dropping later this week, so so get excited for that. You mean the the roundtable is great, not the big show, right? The the twenty years of the big show haven't been that great. Like two of them have, but I wouldn't say all twenty of the years have been great. But the roundtable, I assume, is great. Well, that would be a spoiler. I, I want the people to you know read the roundtable and see what we said. It would be a spoiler if I said that. 
yeah, he's mostly underachieved, but yeah. <laughs> uh, you can check me out at the next Twitter. That's T H E N one C K S D E R. You can check us out at howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com. Uh, you can also rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and the Google Play Store. Uh, should, you should follow us at. Uh, at hwetwpod check us out at patreon.com slash hwetw and subscribe to the youtube channel uh which is under how wrestling explains the world dave did you have anything about pocket cast today or did your scoop is that all you have i i have to be really really careful with how i word this because like you know that i always want to be very honest and forthcoming with with the audience and and give them as much insight and information as i can but i i did receive a telegram yesterday uh shortly shortly after the show dropped from keenan himself actually um and let's just say that there are certain trade secrets that weren't supposed to be disclosed until the show premiered. And um, Nick, I don't know how many episodes we got left, man. Keenan is pissed. <laughs> you got a telegram? Stop. Ah, you get it? <laughs> <laughs>
白酒。